0: Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Kyle. And we We have have issues. issues. And today we'll be discussing some of those issues with Representative Mark Snyder.
1: I gotta tell you, I'm really looking forward to this, Kyle, because he's the kind of guy that doesn't mind throwing a little shade at the governor even though they're from the same party
0: yeah i i think it's going to be an interesting conversation i think mark's a, a very thoughtful guy known him for years and uh, and so i'm really looking forward to kind of his take on this past session and maybe some stuff that's coming down the road
1: well and he was the mayor of pot town at one point manitou <laughs> springs so looking forward to hearing what he has to say about marijuana we seem to have you know eight or ten bills that way every year looking forward to hearing what he has to say about that and uh, also some of the successes and failures, certainly around the governor's agenda uh, regarding affordable housing.
0: Yeah, me too. So let's get to it.
1: Well, representative Snyder, uh, thanks for being here today, joining Kyle and I, we'd love to have you on the show. Um, I understand you're an attorney, so lawyer, politician, where did your parents go wrong?
2: <laughs> My dad was an engineer, and I think I don't know if he ever really got over the fact that I went on to law school and practiced law. But uh, it's been a, a great journey for me. I think uh, having a legal background has definitely made me a better elected official.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, if, if your parents are any, anything like mine, mine disowned me for being a lawyer politician a few years ago.
0: Well, my, my daughter's an attorney, no idea where it came from, because nobody else in our family is. But mm. so I have some disappointment to look forward to in the future. Is that what we're saying here? Yeah. Well, and,
1: and you know, how my, my daughter just told me the other day she's thinking about going to law school. So I'll, I'll have that disappointment to look forward to as well, <laughs> you know, in the steps of the old man.
2: Well, many people disdain lawyers until they need one that's I mean, right they're, they're the best friend then that's know? true
0: <laughs> very true they're a bunch of pit bull assholes until you need one no i'm i'm glad she did it so we have one in the family when we need it
1: so mark with a c and i'll be pronouncing that with a c for the rest of the day since i'm mark with a k <laughs> mm-hmm. get avoid confusion that way for kyle no, i'm kidding <laughs> so so we had uh senator gardner bob gardner on um a couple of weeks ago and he he actually kind of articulated to us that he thought it was one of the worst sessions in the history of the state of Colorado. He said, you know, we worked constantly. We actually worked uh, on a Sunday for the first time since 1930. That had never happened before. But just from a kind of workload perspective, you know, he said it was one of the worst. We were kind of hoping to get your perspective on that.
2: You know, I maybe don't have the same uh, longer term perspective as Senator Gardner. Uh, I understand what he's saying. I didn't think it was that much different than the previous couple of sessions. Um, what I've learned is, you know, the end of the session is crazy. I'm sure Mark, you remember how crazy it gets then. I will say this year, it seemed like a lot more really big, important bills weren't even really brought, were introduced until the end of the session. And that was, uh, challenging for everybody.
1: Well, what, why does that happen? Why do you think they you know, kind of wait until the last minute to bring these big bills forward?
2: You know, I go back and forth between thinking it's intentional because if you don't have, you know, weeks and weeks for people to study up on it, find the things that they find objectionable that they would like to amend. The other part of it is I think some of these big bills take a long time to actually get crafted and drafted and go through a stakeholding process. So I'm not 100 percent sure, but I've been around as my fifth session. And I do think there is some intentionality there to bringing these big bills towards the end. And unfortunately, it goes against what I believe we should be doing up there, which is doing as much stakeholding as we can, getting all perspectives from all the people who are going to be affected by it and, and and come up with a better bill. I'd rather see these large, uh, important bills introduced uh, you know, in mid-March or April 1st rather than April 29th.
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to try to get to the right uh, answer—that's for sure. And I, I guess the the issue here becomes, and maybe our listeners don't understand this: the legislature meets for a 120-day session, right? Yes. And then after it's over, that's it. You can't uh, extend it. You can't move forward with that session. If if the governor wanted to um, have a special session, the regular session would have to end. Every bill that was on the calendar would die. And then you'd have to start a special session over after that, right?
2: Right. That's correct. And we did have a special session back when Casey Becker was our speaker. Um, She was a pretty pretty tough speaker. So I think she was willing to stand up to the governor's office and say, we have a lot of important work to do. We need to be a part of it. And so we did come back, I believe, in December and had a special session. But, you know, there is the theory, too, that if – you know really big bills especially ones that the governor's not maybe in favor of and likely to veto there's a, a a growing movement to get some of these bills through and pass both chambers early because once it goes through enrolling and goes up to the governor's desk during the session he has 10 days to either veto it sign it or let it go into law and so what happens at the end of the session and i i experienced that this year You know, the governor a lot of times doesn't really take an interest in a bill till the session's over or till it comes to his desk, and there's nothing we can do. Yeah. So I had a credit, uh, casino credit bill that I was on, and that's what happened with that. So I got that dreaded call from the governor's office saying the governor would like to have a Zoom call with you, and that to me I knew what was coming. But you know, once and then he says, "Well, I have this problem and this problem." Well, if I had known that back in April. I could have amended the bill or found a path forward that would have satisfied the governor. So it's a little frustrating to have your bill vetoed after the session when there's really nothing you can do to yeah. change
0: it. So here in a little bit, we'll get into some of those bigger bills that might have come forward or whatever. But maybe to start with, what let's talk about some of the bills you carried this session. What are you most proud of? What? How do you feel like your your priorities were held up?
2: Well, you know, I one th- one thing that's been a constant for me since I've been uh, in the legislature is wildfire mitigation and prevention. And having been mayor of Manitou Springs during the Waldo fire in 2012, um, that has been really near and dear to me because I saw firsthand and nothing, thank goodness, burned in Manitou Springs during the Waldo fire. Our problem started when the fire went out and we had two years of, you know, just Awful flooding and mud yeah, flows and debris that. flows. I think we had 72 buildings damaged and a dozen or more homes completely swept away. So that's been a real passion for me. I've served on the Wildfire Interim Committee, was chair one year, and I've really learned a lot in that space. So the three wildfire bills I was on this year, I'm very proud of those, especially the uh, home hardening. Which is, uh, I know there was a bill that passed this year creating a new kind of a new. Building code for the wooey, which is not defined in statute anywhere. Well, and, and for
1: listeners, explain what wooey means. Uh, there are yeah. a lot of folks that, yeah. that, that don't know what that means, including Kyle and I. So, no. actually,
0: well, I do yeah. know yeah. what it means. So, sure. shockingly, so the, shockingly, one of the few things
2: I know. The <laughs> wooey is the wildland urban interface, and it's pretty commonsensical. I mean, where development encroaches up into the forest, into the heavily wooded hillsides, foothills. You know, those are the areas where we're going to have the biggest loss of property and, and perhaps even loss of life, which most of our fires, at least we have. Seems like at least two people lose their lives in those yeah. fires. Um, so there's a new Wui code, Board, but that's a that's a multi-year process to get, you know, all the stakeholders together try. And I when I back even when I served on the Regional Building Commission, I know how difficult it is to update a code and to write and insert a new code. And it's a multi-year process with a lot of stakeholding. Each one of the groups from electricians to plumbers want to meet and have their own issues that they want to deal with. So this year, I came up with a different approach. I thought that if we can make it uh, build the demand side, because the, the technology and the, the building materials have caught up with the need. You know, a few years ago, it was much more expensive if you wanted to build a wildfire-resistant home or retrofit a home with wildfire-resistant materials. But because there's such demand now, wildfires have been such a big part all over the West especially, those prices, uh, the supply has increased. The prices have come down. Now it costs about exactly the same to use wildfire best practices Uh, fire resistant materials as it does to do a traditional build. So I thought, let's, let's build a promotional campaign. Let's get the word out to home builders, home buyers uh, that, you know, for the same price, you can take steps that can greatly increase the chances of your home.
1: There was some opposition to that bill, right? Like I think El Paso County actually opposed that bill or took a a opposed position. I could be wrong about that, but I was a little bit surprised by you know, how the line sort of drew up on that one. You know, I assume there would be a a bit of a partisan divide on that bill. You know, hey, we're uh, introducing legislation that's going to actually increase the cost of housing at a time when we're trying to make housing more affordable. That was going to be a big issue. And I think that there were some more conservative areas that sort of took that approach and said, we oppose the bill because we don't want to see the cost of housing go up. But I was actually surprised at some of the people that I thought would be in opposition to the bill, ended up supporting it. So, for example, Grand County, who, you know, their entire, um, you know, any urban area they have within Grand County falls within this interface that's not very well defined, and they actually supported the bill.
2: They did. And you're right. There was some opposition there originally because we are desperate. We're in such a housing crisis now. Anything that would increase the cost of developing housing has to be really looked at. And I, I think we tailored the bill to allow a lot of those concerns, uh, pointing out that this is, you know, a demand side thing. And one thing I know about builders is they want to build what people want to buy. So if we can build that demand side, use the market in our favor to create such that folks want to build a home, they're insisting, we, we want these best practices, these best materials. We want to design. And we want to use materials that will give us the best opportunity of surviving through a wildfire event. So I think uh, that came around quite a bit. Uh, some of the opposition really st- stood down and i think what's important to recognize is even though we're only starting this program off with a hundred i think it was a hundred thousand dollars to get it started um there's a lot of federal money out there and The way that process works, my understanding, that's probably the next big tranche of money coming out of the federal package will be for this. So this was creating a home, a grant program, getting all the work done so that if we do receive those federal dollars, we can get them right out the door.
0: Is it a one-for-one match on the grant, or is it a You know, we
2: left that rulemaking up to the Division of Fire Prevention and Control, so they'll be uh deciding exactly i'm I'm anticipating it right now it'd probably be a cap of like five thousand dollar match yeah you know it's 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 much easier to incorporate these into new builds or rebuilds than to retrofit existing buildings so we're trying to cover all of those and one thing we've learned is I've always been focused on the WUI because that's, you know, we have a statewide fire risk assessment map. It pretty much told us what we intuitively already knew. Pretty much all of my district 18 is here along the foothills. That's high areas, evergreen. We saw fires up in Fort Collins. So, but what we've seen is a changing nature of the fire. I mean, nobody had the Marshall Fire on uh, any map is a high risk area and i think even down here in el paso county we've had some 40 or 50 brush fires yeah that they've been able to contain but you know i worry we're going to have the same mm-hmm. you know factors appear here with 100 mile an hour winds and so i think we have to think even broader than just a specific wooey still our highest risk areas yeah but i think we need that's why this program is open statewide it is not tied to the fire risk assessment. It's one of the factors that fire prevention and control we use. But I think uh in a wet year like this, it's time to double down and really get ahead of it because we know yeah. we're gonna be back, you know, six weeks without rain, and we're back in the same spot we've been in many times before. Uh, red flag days, high fire danger. And so, so
1: So a lot of great work on wildfire mitigation, which by the way, I think we met for the first time in 2013 touring after. Uh, the floods related to um that's right uh, the burn scarf you remember uh, I was down with the DOC director and with the lieutenant governor Joe Garcia at the time and I think that's yeah. you were still the mayor of uh, Manitou Springs <laughs> but but anyway on on uh, uh, on one hand you're working on all this wildfire mitigation and in another respect, you're working on starting a lot of fires as well, right? You're doing a lot in the uh, marijuana industry, isn't that correct?
2: <laughs> you, you are absolutely correct. And I, looking back now after completing my fifth session, uh, you know, I know when I came into the legislature, it was not my intention to carry a lot of cannabis bills. Um, And of course, you know, cannabis is regulated ultimately by Department of Revenue through their Marijuana Enforcement Division. And I'm chair of the Finance Committee this year, and we are the Committee of Reference for the Department of Revenue. But even prior to that, um, I think with my local experience going through the pot wars, so to speak, with the passage of Amendment uh, 64, in twenty twelve and then that being by,
1: by local experience, you know, you're talking about being the, the mayor of uh the mayor of Manitou, Manitou Springs. Spring's the
2: only community, only jurisdiction in El Paso County that has authorized recreational sales. Unless that changed this year, it, Palmer, it Lake. Did. Palmer Lake Palmer Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Say that, yeah. Palmer Lake. Th-
0: some marks closer to it now. Yes, yeah,
2: so I that, literally that was I live attempt.
1: halfway between the two pot stores in Palmer Lake. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I if I you know need some recreational uh, help at all. He's I never without about a mile each direction. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think
2: that was the third time that was on the ballot up there in Palmer Lake. And it passed so you
1: 55 45. Yeah. You did it. So yeah. I was very opposed to it, by the way.
0: Mm-hmm. I actually support recreational marijuana. So that's one area where Mark and I are a little different. so
2: Well, I have to admit, in 2012, as mayor, they came to me and said, Oh, we want you to endorse this ballot measure. And I first thought it was a solution in search of a problem because, to be honest with you, if somebody wanted to get a bag of marijuana, it wouldn't take them more than a half hour in most cases. <laughs> but the more I studied it, the and, and more you I You say realized... that
1: from experience, right? That's, uh, you... No, I'm kidding. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm I, kidding. I, yes, there
2: is a, not a lot of personal experience, but I have some personal experience in that area. Uh, but as the more I studied it, I realized, you know, having it tested making sure there's no contaminants or harmful products in there yeah. really regulating it correctly and it's been a you know decades really we start with uh medical marijuana which failed i think the first two times it was on the ballot then it passed and the numbers were very low on the red card registry until the Cole memo of 2011 and then and, it, and in
1: that it, case we went from about 1900 medical marijuana patients in the state of Colorado to 150,000 overnight. You know, every ski boarder in Colorado had an elbow problem after uh after that movie came out.
2: So uh,
0: you're saying more people were able to be helped. Yeah, I guess that's one
1: <laughs> way to say
2: it. I think the bulk of those people were like 23 year olds yeah, and suddenly right. had a bad back. And I, you I know? and
1: if I remember it was like uh fifteen doctors were responsible for like 85% eighty-five percent yep. of the uh, uh Prescription. yeah Recom- recommendations, cards. Recommendation, yes. recommendations yeah. for cards yeah. And, yeah. and
2: quite a few doctors lost their license over that too yeah. so it was i think now we've settled in somewhere around 65 70,000 people on the registry uh, there are legitimate people who oh, need yeah. that as medicine um, and you know i hope we could get back to serving only people that have a true medical need
1: And who would want to be on the registry now and have that tracked by the government when they can just go purchase it recreationally uh, by my house?
2: And and it's (laughs) costly. I mean, I think you pay $400 a year to maintain your registration, and you make that up depending, I guess, on the volume of purchases you make, but the price is much reduced and the taxes
1: are practically non existent.
2: So, yeah. um, But, it's. I think it was uh, an area that I kind of evolved in my thinking on. And as mayor of Manitou, people don't remember this, but we had a ballot petition, a citizen's petition circulating that would have allowed an unlimited number of stores anywhere in our commercial district, including our historic downtown. I, I thought that was, a, and I called it the worst idea since gambling for Manitou Springs. So I think through our process, we... We had seven applications. Four of those were ripe to be heard, and two of those succeeded. So we ended up with two stores in Manitou Springs. And there was an effort just last year to add a third store that the voters resoundly rejected. So I think we've come to a happy place. It's, yeah,
0: it seems like it's know. a good good size match up there with the number of stores. So yeah,
2: and and I, it wasn't by accident or happenstance mm-hmm. that we didn't open our first store until august 1st of 2014. so you could you, legally you could start january 1 of 2014. we kind of slow walked it i wanted to see what happened in other jurisdictions so i learned from pueblo how bad bad the parking issues and traffic issues could be i learned from breckenridge confirm what i already suspected you don't want these stores on your main street in the middle of your your tourist area many of our visitors come from states that have not embraced the cannabis movement and and uh, that, and then also the dual tracking of, of receipts. I learned up in Denver where they were allowing me just electronic tracking. Oh, the computer crashed. We lost data. I didn't want to hear that. So I required yeah. a two uh, a dual tracking system. You have an electronic system. I wanted a paper trail, too. Well, yeah.
1: and, and the worst part of it, in terms of you know putting it on Main Street, it stinks. Yeah, I mean, it smells really bad. Uh, I, you know, I take my car over to the car wash every once in a while and there's a medical marijuana dispensary nearby and I, man, I feel like I get a contact high when I'm, you know, getting my car wash. It's just horrible. I can't stand it. So, so, you know, every year it seems like, uh, you know, and and I said back when I was in the legislature, uh, recreational sales passed with amendment 20, it was about 10 or 12 years ago now. And I said, it'd be a decade or better. Uh, trying to work out the regulatory environment. And and here we are still doing it. So I don't know, the legislature hears a number of bills every single year when it comes to marijuana. About how many bills were... introduced on a marijuana front this year i mean you have any idea
2: just off the top of my head i would say half a dozen every year that related to it i had a bill a couple of years ago which kind of a cannabis omnibus bill so i tried to put the whole all of the issues and all the outstanding concerns and stuff all together into one package I worked with the Marijuana Industry Group and with social equity applicants, uh, the the MED. They actually were the ones that came to me and said, we need more guidance on where we go from here. Because, you know, when we first started, we were the first or one of the first. We had a thriving marijuana tourism industry. We had people coming in from out of state. We had bus lines that would take people around. But now we've got, what, some 21 states have legalized recreational marijuana so i look at the colorado industry as you know they they bore the brunt of being one of the first and we put them through an awful lot of hoops made them do everything from security cameras to testing requirements and all kinds of things so i wanted to kind of bring it all together but i think the governor he was not enamored with that bill And ultimately, I had to postpone it indefinitely. Um, Which means you just kill the bill for the year. Right, right. And so I, I passed through the business committee 10 to 1.
1: And so I guess that was one of those circumstances where the governor reached out to you and said, hey, I don't like your bill. You better kill it on your own, as opposed to saying nothing and then vetoing it later.
2: I'm not sure he told me directly, but when you have the director of the Department of Revenue, Mark Ferrandino, (laughs) Phil Weiser, the attorney general and the head of the Marijuana Enforcement Division, Dominique Mendiola all signed up to testify in opposition. That's a pretty big tell that (laughs) that, that the administration was not in favor. Um, But I look at this industry like I've looked at several other industries is once it's legal, it's been approved, then it's another Colorado industry. And my job, part of it, is to promote Colorado industries. So we have finally opened it up. We allow for out-of-state investment into in the cannabis businesses. Um, we've done a lot of things to make it competitive in an increasingly competitive market.
1: So what are some of the things, you know, I'm guessing the half dozen bills this year, some of them pissed off the marijuana industry and and some of them, you know, caused people to light a bowl in your uh, honor. <laughs> um, what you care to talk about uh, legislation this year that way?
2: Sure. And, and you know, I, I think t- people tend to think about the laws that are passed and changes that we make as being you know promoting the industry and that's true to some extent but there's also you're always finding loopholes that people are able to um, do things that we we don't want them doing so
1: and if there is an industry where they can figure that kind of stuff out it's potheads they know how to work around the law better than anybody i know
0: yeah, so see, it doesn't mess with cognition the way most people think it does. No, only if you're uh. under
2: 25. <laughs> but, you know, to their credit, they recognize that they want to have a well-regulated, well-policed industry. Yep. It's to their, it to their benefit to have that, that type of system. So one I had the worst title of the year was Embargo and Destroy Marijuana. But that was really an administrative bill where we have a, a loophole. Where if your product has been deemed um, not for sale, whether it's for health reasons, contamination, mold, um,
1: which is a big problem with marijuana,
2: or
0: it
1: can be, right?
2: it is, it is, and, and mites,
1: and, I think, uh, is a big issue as well. Well, you can
2: imagine a grower; they, you know, especially if an outdoor grower, they have one one season. Yeah, you know, they got to go over throughout the summer, and they have you know a lot invested into that. And if that crop is contaminated or not salable then, you know, that could be a real problem for them. Of course, we originally started out, stores had to grow 80% of their own product. And we've loosened a lot of those restrictions. I think that's actually fully removed now. But this one just gave administrative authority to um, the uh, Marijuana Enforcement Division to actually segregate and have the facilities store those products. I, uh, I suggested to director Ferrandino that maybe his garage would be a good place to sort some <laughs> of these pro- failed testing products. And he, he wasn't too enamored with that <laughs> idea, but, uh, the state really doesn't have the capacity to seize and, and hold these products while it goes through the administrative appeals process. And there's an ability to cure some of these products. Sometimes if you have a mold uh, problem, you can hit it with ultraviolet light and that will take care of it. It can be retested and found to be safe for sale. So it's just what what do they do with that product in the six, eight months it may take for it to get finally a final determination to be made.
1: And, and if I remember correctly, going back several years, this is one of those issues where after a certain period of time and maybe it is like six or eight months, um, it, it's just no longer usable just because it's, you know, dried up or withered up or whatever.
2: I, I think the technology and the the knowledge that they've gained they're able to store that product for much longer oh, really? periods now and keep it viable and keep it in a very uh like, salable I think you know, they'd just move con- it to the condition. outlet store. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: when it gets to that
2: point.
1: Like like major league baseball and like the humidors <laughs> uh, that they store the balls in now these uh have the pot uh, humidor. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but exactly. I, but I think you well what we're finding is that you know a lot of these people in in this industry and, and now specifically hemp because the farm bill from a couple of years ago really opened up uh what they can do with hemp products and it created this problem where people are now you know using chemists and and you know others to to really chemically alter the hemp products so hemp uh i think by definition can't have higher than 0.3 uh percentage of thc but you know they sell and they do we have wonderful you know very strong successful businesses like charlotte's web and others who sell cdb products that have been transformational and life-saving for people with you know seizure disorders and other medical conditions cancer patients and others it's been a real uh Uh, great area for us but as usual there's some unscrupulous people that take these products and distill them down and create intoxicating products totally unregulated I was able to go up in Denver uh, prior to my bill coming to the floor bill 271 was a Senate bill Um, and it sought to really regulate that market and we took it even further in the house we put amendments on there that really restricted it started out at 2.5 milligrams of thc per unit a gummy or whatever and we ended up taking that all the way down to 1.25 because that's intoxicating you know we capped the limits to five per package but if you're selling five gummies and each one contains 2.5 milligrams you know, you're already up to what I consider the kind of the baseline for intoxication is 10 milligrams, and yeah. there are people that take much many times that amount. Um, so it was a very it's a very difficult space because we don't want to incrimp, you know, impinge upon the ability of legitimate health businesses be able to sell their products. At the same time, we had to get rid of these unregulated, unstudied dangerous products and
0: and i I think it's all great like i said i'm supportive of recreational marijuana being legalized and and obviously a lot of regulation to it and everything but it's still in the context of the overall economy it's still a pretty young industry even at 10 years old so i it doesn't surprise me at all that there's going to be at least for a few more years probably loopholes here and there that are trying to get filled and and then as the industry matures it'll it'll settle in with kind of all the correct regulations and, and, you know, I mean, alcohol has been around for hundreds and thousands of years. So probably went through all of those kinds of things way, you know, over a century ago.
1: Yeah. I kind of, I liken it a lot to alcohol. And I mean, if you look back over history, maybe what, 40 or 50 years ago, uh, the presumptive limit for driving under the standard of alcohol was like 015 which now is all, you know? twice the legal limit, twice. you know, because as, as we've uh, gotten more data, as we've studied it more, as we've understood it more, that limit has come down and down and down. And I, I think that's, you know, exactly the point you're trying to make here, Kyle, which is, you know, hey, it is going to take a while to get this right.
0: Yeah, because they, they, I mean, I think they're still working on, you know, really, really effective testing from a, like from a driving standpoint, when somebody's, under the influence while they're driving is being able to monitor that better. Um, also, you know, there's lots of issues with employment that you know THC stays in your system a lot longer even after the effects have worn off, and if an employer's doing drug testing and that pops up, so I think there's still some things to be resolved and looked at. But I, I well, you I'm, know, how you I'm can tell a stone
2: it. driver on the highway. They're the one in the right lane going 50 miles an hour with both hands on the wheel. <laughs> Wait, where... <laughs> so you're saying my grandma was stoned for the last 10 years of her life? Whereas the drunk driver is probably the one going 85 miles an hour, weaving in and out of lanes and, you know, driving like a maniac. But no, I say that tongue in cheek. Yeah. I think you're right. There's a lot more that needs to be learned. and And, you know, I think depending on where you come from, the statistics can be use in a favorable way for your argument. so people will tell you, well most of the time people get pulled over for DUI, they have alcohol and oftentimes they have cannabis in their THC in their system also. yeah so I think we still have to try and figure it out it's really hard because people build up a tolerance and especially people with medical cards and others they may be using you know many times the amount of recreational user would but you know they need that for health reasons. Should they be behind the wheel? Probably not. Yeah. You know, so there are challenges. We did the big bill, I think it was last, just last year, that regulated the sale uh, using the red card to minors. And, you know, because that's where we're seeing the real problem. Youth brains now, studies say they keep developing till age 25. And I think we really don't have a full understanding of what it does to the teenage brain, especially with the higher concentrates and the higher percentages of THC in the products. Now, this is not the... Trailer weed that many of us uh, were first exposed to many years ago is is much more powerful. And so I think we need to keep working at it. Um, I agree.
1: Wow. Trailer weed. I haven't heard that reference in
0: a long (laughs) time. I I grew up in Kansas. We called it K-weed. So it was uh, was mostly what was found in the ditches
1: growing around. When I grew up in Illinois, it was ditch weed. Yeah. Ditch weed. Yeah. Between the, you know, like, you know, cornfields
0: and fields. You had to smoke like a hay bale of it to... (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: so well, do you want to jump into some of the bigger issues from the session?
1: Yeah, here here's one of the things that that I thought was incredibly fascinating about the legislative session. It seems like the the governor's sort of uh, keynote area of interest we'll call it, was affordable housing. Um I mean, he talked a lot about it uh, in his opening day speech, and then he ended up introducing it, to your point earlier, introduced some legislation pretty late in the session regarding land use issues and how he could, you know, maybe create some affordable housing opportunities by putting some restrictions on local governments. And I thought one of the things that was, uh, um, fascinating to me, this is, uh, this one particular bill, Senate bill 213, it was all about land use and, you know, kind of forcing local governments. And as somebody that's a former mayor, um, you know, I tell you, you probably weren't too happy about it. In fact, you voted against the bill. Um, But it was it was telling to me that his sort of keynote issue of the session uh, comes in the form of a bill that ends up dying on the last day of the session.
2: I think he makes a lot of good points. That was such a big transformative bill uh, to come that late in the session. Um, I think what I noticed this year with the governor's office was they were not as on top of things as they have been in the first four years. And maybe that was a bit of a reelection hangover. I'm not sure what it was, but in the past, the governor, especially on big, important bills, his office was engaged early with legislators. They were working with uh stakeholding groups and what have you. These uh, even though there's it's alleged that there was a lot of stakeholding done. Most of us legislators were not aware or were not invited to and weren't a part of that, I think what I think they underestimated was just how much Coloradans love local control and home rule. We are, it's baked into our consciousness. It's been our constitution that, you know, we, we leave decisions, especially land use decisions up to local jurisdictions and to bring a bill that suddenly would take away a lot of that zoning and density issues and put it up with, I think it was DOLA. Department of Local Affairs up in Denver was just from the start a non starter for many local jurisdictions. And and
1: please, for our listeners, talk a little bit about what that bill was attempting to do and why it was doing it.
2: Well, it it was attempting to um, take uh, the zoning authority and density and things like ADUs and, uh, you know, mother in law cottages. What do you call them? accessory dwelling units Mm -hmm. and taking those kind of away from local control. And if having a standard set up in Denver with DOLA, and if they determined that a particular jurisdiction, like Colorado Springs, a big city now, you know, they would look at it and say, no, your, your regulations that don't allow for multifamily housing in neighborhoods, um, is, is not advancing the cause. And so they would take that away. And that was just an anathema to local, to almost to a man and woman, people involved in local government were not happy and impressed with that bill.
1: Well, in some of that, um, uh, ADU stuff, the, uh, accessory dwelling unit stuff was actually used by right. So it wasn't even something that DOLA could regulate it to just say, Hey, um, you can do this on your property by right. So I I was kind of thinking, you know, Hey, I live on five acres. Uh, this gives me an (laughs) opportunity to basically illegally subdivide my, Five acres. I was just going to put up uh, tiny homes everywhere, Wallerville, um, and, you know, and then not have to pay any road impact fees, not have to pay any uh, school impact fees. And it was going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be the way we funded this uh, podcast, Kyle. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, and, and you have to look back over the history of population growth in, in Colorado You know, we put ourselves in this situation where we rely on metro districts and special districts to fund things. Uh, Other states do it differently. You know, uh, back where I originally was raised back in Maryland, they have a front foot benefit charge. So the road, the utilities, all of that is the government. uh, partners with private industry gets that all installed and then that's paid off over 30, 40 years with what they call the front foot benefit charge, small portion on your property tax every year. We've chosen a different path. We require developers to build the infrastructure, you know, and that for a large development that includes, you know, police substations, fire stations, elementary schools, and we, uh, you know, put those requirements on them. We allow them to bond because they don't need the school right now, but they sure might yeah. need it in 10 or 12 yeah, right. years. And then what happens when that time comes to build that school, that bond is 10, 12 years old. It doesn't cover the cost of it. Well,
1: and, and hold, hold on to that Metro district issue, because I'm going to use that to bitch about HH here in just a little bit, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. I kind of want to finish this discussion on uh, this, this two thirteen bill. And I, I, you know, I get, The governor wants to provide affordable housing, and it's no secret. I mean, we all got our property assessments. There is not affordable housing in the state of Colorado. And I I know a big part of this bill was, you know, hey, forcing local governments to um, have to create zoning for uh, density development, you know, multifamily, stuff like that. You know, uh, in fact, he mentioned uh, when he was introducing this bill, the town of Monument, which has really gone, you know, very anti-developer. Um, you know, they only want million-dollar homes on one-acre lots. you know, they don't want to be doing density development there. But but I I get that I get that the governor's trying to solve a problem. I I do. And we do have a significant affordable housing issue. But it seems to me, and maybe this is where we disagree as a Republican, you're a Democrat, it it seems to me there are other much better ways to get at the affordable housing issue than forcing local governments to provide density developments.
2: And and I would have to agree with you on that. I had a bill uh, last year. I call it the middle income uh, access program. So you have a couple both working. Maybe she's a school teacher. He's a firefighter. Make good salaries. The rule always was three times your gross salary. That's what you could afford. Well, now that's become unobtainable for people so i think i don't think the government state of colorado is ever going to have the resources to solve our affordable housing crisis but we can be strategic in how we invest in what we do so if we can bridge that gap for people and i think we have everything has to be on the table i mean construction defects blessedly was Definitely. resolved prior to my getting to the legislature oh, it, okay. yeah you know but i think it's time to maybe look I, at that less than five percent of our housing new builds is in the condominiums Yeah, and condominiums are often the, the very easiest and first way for people to get home ownership right. and start building equity and the fact that we that uh, builders won't build condominiums because of our, you know, overly litigious laws in Colorado is something. And Senator Gardner and I have been talking about that. And it's Representative Bird is another. We think it's time to revisit that and see what we could do. If I think that would else, be great. Uh, right? I,
0: I think that would be a great first step.
2: And give give the builder a a period of time to repair. Yeah. You know, because right now. They can file these lawsuits. If you build a 30-unit complex and one is found with a construction defect, it's assumed that all 30 of them have that construction defect. And not only can you sue the the owner of the land, the developer, the drywaller, the electrician, everybody that worked on it, Habitat for Humanity was sued as a property owner for building a low-income affordable housing on, on a property that they owned. It was found with a construction defect, in it, and they had to spend $20,000 to get themselves removed from that suit. That's just uh, not the way we should be approaching this.
0: Do you think another version of this bill is going to come back next year, or do you think it was a the opposition was so resounding that it might go away?
2: I think some version will come back, certainly, uh, hopefully with lessons learned.
1: Well, well, they've got we- to stakehold it. I mean, that's got to be the deal, right? They got to reach out to these local governments to figure out what they can live with.
0: Well, the other thing I'm thinking might happen is you're going to see some of these local governments take it on themselves the way they want to do it locally so that there's no need for it at the state level. So I think one positive thing from it, I think, might be that it's elevated the conversation, who knows? I don't know if Colorado Springs or any of the local communities are are looking harder at some of these things. Yeah.
1: Here, here's what I see as the problem with that. It's not it's not the governments themselves that are the problem. It's in a lot a lot of circumstances. It's the constituencies that show up to the meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody wants affordable housing, just not in their backyard. True. You know, when I was a county commissioner, I learned two things about people that live in eastern El Paso County. Number one, they want to live absolutely free of government interference in their life, but they're good if you check in on their neighbor. Don't look at the junk cars on my lawn, but by God, that guy over there is doing something wrong and you need to regulate him. Don't regulate me, but regulate my neighbor, right? That, that's number one. And number two, here's one thing I know about every, and, it, and, and this transcends El Paso County. Um, everybody wants their house to be the last one built. Yeah. That's what it comes down to in the state of Colorado. Not in my backyard. It's okay that somebody built this house or uh, built my house and it interrupts the, you know, mountain views um, of the guy behind me. But by God, you better not build a house in front of me and interrupt my views.
2: Yeah. You're absolutely right. NIMBYism is alive and well and a very f- forceful uh, factor these days. Because I've watched as Colorado Springs has, you know, they just passed their plan. Colorado Springs, a whole new way that they're approaching uh, zoning and development. And I've seen over the years where they have, you know, really come close to like actually putting in, I think they put into place some kind of ADU structure, but they got such pushback from the neighbors that they peeled it back. You look up there at uh 2525 garden of the gods road, which is a large apartment complex proposed for up there in that high risk area. Um, and I think it was initially approved. And when the neighbors came out in force and opposed it, they uh, put additional conditions on that, which were not in their code. And that has to do with another bill I had thats uh, evacuations, clearance times, and modeling. Um, but you see that. So there's part of me that thinks there may be some merit in having a state influence here that would give cover to local jurisdictions said that often change their thinking when they get confronted with that group of angry neighbors and citizens.
1: I, I've actually thought of if some of these local governments were smart, that's exactly what they would do. You know, we'll, we'll be opposed to it because we want local control, but once it passes, well, it, it's not my fault. This is happening. Call called exactly. governor Polis. Yeah. He's the one that did this, not me. You know, and a lot of people, you, you talked about that, that garden of the gods uh, project. You know, a lot of people say that's part of the reason that uh, Wayne Williams isn't the mayor of Colorado Springs now.
0: Good point, yeah.
2: But yeah, I think these issues will continue to be problematic for us because, you know, how, how do we eschew 900 new dwelling units for people, apartments? And, you know, we had a lot of bills this year that look to uh, give relief to renters. And I think people sometimes need to look at the historical patterns of the real estate market. Rents are always the last thing to be affected, so home prices go up and, you know, now interest rates are up. It's reduced the number of people that are eligible for home ownership and the rents are continuing to rise, 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 while property values have kind of steadied off. Not everywhere. There's pockets where they're still rising, but overall they're down uh, from their all-time highs and yet rents are continuing to rise. So is this something that will eventually be corrected as a, every Every cycle in the past, eventually those are affected two or three years down the road, or if we reached a point where we just don't have enough housing stock and rents will continue to rise until we solve that problem. So I think we need a full approach on all segments, not just entry-level low-income housing, which we desperately need. But when I talk about that middle income, these are folks traditionally would be able to afford a home. And I met many people knocking on doors you know wives that were actually in tears they desperately want their own home they're yeah. so tired of renting not building any equity and so how do we solve that problem for those middle income folks that are just getting further and further away from home mm-hmm. ownership that's where i think strategic investment with the government and oftentimes if the government can help pick up the land costs, that can be what really makes a project go forward and uh, the developer will commit to uh, lower prices, um, in exchange for what they receive on the front end. So yeah. I think no way we can solve it all with state budget, but we can do strategic investments. that can really move the ball. And there yeah. was
1: a bill this year that created some grant opportunities that way, mm-hmm. right. for local governments to be able to invest in, you know, mm-hmm. as long as they're mm-hmm. creating, I think it was like 3% of their inventory is, um, affordable housing then they right. can apply for some state level grants to help push this and issue along
2: we removed growth caps i think there were only two jurisdictions that had put in a one percent growth cap but those have a real negative effect not only on in, in say boulder but then outlying jurisdiction the pressure is just ramped up on them mm-hmm. and that's having people live further and further away from where they work it creates you know a, a kind of a cascading uh, series of problems whether it's increased emissions from all that traveling, more more wear and tear on roads. Mm-hmm. So I think that was good. We had other bills like the right of first refusal um, for governments to buy up a property. I, I think there's something there. This bill, I didn't think, got us where we wanted to be. So the governor vetoed it. Um, so obviously it made it through the House and the Senate.
0: Governor vetoed it. What was his main reason? I mean, one of the things I, I – I mean – I don't know if it's this bill or which one, but obviously your party has a ex- pretty strong majority at the state level. So House, Senate, governor, everything. I-, I mean, did the governor think maybe it was a bit of an overreach?
2: You know, I, I'm not sure I read that son- the uh, veto statement. And they're not always as informative as you would like, to be honest with you. Um, I think this was one where, like I said, there's – there's something worth pursuing here, but I think th- to do that uh, would be so disruptive on the the economy that we have now. So if you're yeah. going if you're going to sell a property, uh, you know, an apartment complex, let's say, and buyers all know that the government has this right of first refusal that they can pick it up for that price they're not going to be interested. They're not going to want to be entangled. They're not going to be held up for six months while city does its due diligence and decides whether they want to exercise that option or not. And so I think the chilling effect it would have had on the normal course of commerce in this area was probably what overrode the benefits of the bill for the governor.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah, and I always thought that was – I I kind of have jokingly said about that bill, it was the dumbest bill of the session – it just, it, it, I mean, I, I sort of get what it's trying to get at, but man, it was just an inappropriate way to go after it. I mean, to be able to hold up a private sale—you know, I've got an apartment complex that's got five units in it, and I want to sell it to you, Kyle. Um, the government can literally hold that process up for nine months. You know, meanwhile, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get out from underneath this thing. Maybe I can't make the payments. Maybe that's the reason I'm trying to sell it in the first place. You know, and. Uh, I'm going to go bankrupt if I can't sell it for the next nine months.
2: I'm a big believer in the free market, and I think we need to always recognize that. And the things, the legislation we're going to pursue needs to work within that system as opposed to just run an end run around. Same thing with the uh, just cause eviction. You know, I understand what the bill sponsors were trying to do. And to give them credit... They took a lot of amendments, several of the ones with it, that I drafted on behalf of single family homes for mil- military community down here, which they don't have a lot of control where they're going to live. They're kind of told you're moving here <laughs> and you're moving back. So they're going to rent their house out while they're going to be gone for two years. And then they want to come back and they have to go through this forced association where they are required to rent to somebody or pick up the cost of three months rent somewhere else for them. So that was a bill that even though a lot of work was done, I had two main issues with that that were not resolved, and that died in the Senate.
1: So just in our our last couple of minutes here, um, we want to talk about um, some of the stuff moving forward, looking forward. You have Proposition HH, which is going to be on the ballot, something the uh, legislature passed to get us there. And what that does is kind of um, there's a a TABOR refund coming up. Uh, from the the state. And the governor says, yep, we want to do the TABOR refund. But we do that based on property values. And so, you know, currently the way it's structured, if your property is valued at a a, a higher amount or you pay more in property taxes, you get more of a TABOR refund. And HH purports to equalize all of that out. Uh, Do I have that right so far? Yes. Okay. You know, my issue with this is, is kind of what you're saying about metro districts you know, we always talk about metro districts in terms of, hey, we're gonna be building new housing, that new growth has got to pay for itself. So I live in a fairly new house. My property taxes are a lot more than say, a house of similar value in an older area of Colorado Springs, but just because, you know, that metro district has to pay for itself. So in one circumstance, we're saying, you know, new growth, you got to pay for yourself. So so if you uh, incur extra taxation, that's okay. But in this circumstance, Well, we want to treat everybody equally. So even if you have a house where you pay more, we're still going to equalize it out and give everybody the same refund. What what do you have to say about that?
2: I recognize it's, it's regressive, I guess, for lack of a better term. In a better world, we would have a some more people would describe it as socialistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to the governor's credit, when he first issued the refunds, uh, was it was just last year, I guess, where instead of basing it upon the collections and how much people pay, we made it flat across the board. So that was kind of a band aid as far as you know making it a little more equitable for people. So if you have even if you paid more than the refund amount. Uh, you would have been entit- previously you would have been entitled to more of a refund. This, I thought, was one way to just kind of blunt the regressive nature of our tax structure.
1: Except I'm gonna need an ADU to pay my property taxes yeah. now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, and that is a problem, and I have to say or seven of them. Yeah, know, or seven, on, yes. On the finance committee in the house, we had several bills, uh, particularly one from Representative Frizzell from up in Douglas County, former assessor of Douglas County, that would have capped uh increases in the assessed value at five percent for the next two years. And but you know, we were being told all along, oh no, there's a big package coming, and it's going to be really good and it's transformational. So we we're waiting for that. I have to admit, it was not as impressive when it was finally read the last week into across the desk the last week. What they were doing with that? There is real relief in there uh, that, that will be effective for a lot of folks, but a lot of people are still facing. A hundred percent increase in their assessed value or eighty yeah. percent. Some really big numbers out there. We did pass a bill that kind of codified that I think county commissioners had already was the ability to low, temporarily lower their mill levy. And I'm not sure what years you served on the county commission. 2004, El Paso County commissioners lowered the mill but made no provision for bringing it back up. And so when your times are booming, seems like a good idea. Times yeah. don't always boom, but yeah. they had no sure. ability to bring that back with Douglas Bruth. Bruce breathing down their neck, saying any increase has to go to the voters.
1: That's the ratcheting impact of Tabor. Absolutely right. a problem.
2: So we, yeah. we we passed a bill this year that allows for that temporary reduction, and I think for it's a very localized. What areas have had the massive increases? The resort communities certainly have seen a lot of that too, but I'm hoping that that local level ability will will give additional relief to property taxpayers because you know if you're going to get a windfall the county can say look we don't need this two extra 220 million dollars yeah we could use it yeah but you know our but we're budgeting out with our five-year plans and what have you so they can lower that mill to meet what they what they need
0: yeah yeah good well Thank you so much for joining us today. This is well, thanks good. Thanks for and having me. Hopefully, maybe after next year's session, we can get together again and talk a little bit about that. It's, I'm, incredibly intrigued to see what comes forward next year with some of these issues. So
1: maybe we should have him back before the session starts to talk about some of the stuff he wants to do. True.
0: Well, and yeah, some of the stuff you want to do and other stuff that you're hearing out there.
1: Find out what some of the hippie liberal marijuana legislation is going to be that he sponsors next year.
0: Yeah. Sorry. No, 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 no. I think that would be great.
2: I am a closet hippie. I am, I'm more liberal than some, but I am pretty much a centrist. Uh, Democrat, you uh, know. A pragmatist, well, I think if, is the way to if say. If you it. ever get tired
0: of Manitou, you can move to Wallerville after uh-huh. he gets that, his his tiny homes added to his property, and maybe you can be uh-huh. the mayor of Wallerville next. So
2: <laughs> that, something to aspire <laughs> to. <laughs>
0: well,
1: I mean, I, hey, so we got the the two pot stores, uh, you know, within a mile each way of me. So you'd bring some experience. It doesn't pay well though.
2: No, no. So, but thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Well, it's been enjoyable. Thank you for having me.
0: listening to we have issues special thanks to our producer ted robertson i'm kyle
1: and i'm mark and boy you're right we have issues tune in next week for even more